Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People This Week. No attempt to take innocent life on UK soil will go either unsanctioned or unpunished. Are we heading for war with Russia? Whether you're renting by choice or necessity, you're not any less of a person for doing so, and you should not be treated as such. Renters are people too. I've been assured multiple times that I don't have to worry because I am so ugly that no one would want to rape me. And Mari Black reveals the true extent of the abuse she receives. All of this and more on Commons People. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast with me, Owen Bennett. And this week I am joined by Mr Paul War. Hello, Paul. Hello. And I'm joined by Kate Forrester. How are you, Kate? Not bad, thanks. Good, good. As you're listening to this, dear listener, make sure you tweet us, hashtag Commons People, and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you download this fantastic podcast from, just to make it easier for other people to find it. Let's crack on, shall we? There is so much to talk about this week. Let's talk with a story that's been dominating much the news agenda. And uh, Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, said today that the use of a nerve agent on British soil was a brazen and reckless act, which we met with a robust response. Speaking in the Commons, she refused to be drawn on who was responsible for the attempted murder of the former Russian spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter Julia in Salisbury. However, backbench MPs said Russia must be held to account if it was found to be behind the attack. Edward Lee told Rudd, if Russia is behind this, this is a brazen act of war of humiliating our country. Former Tory minister Nick Bowles has already suggested the UK should cut ties with Russia. Here's Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson earlier in the week talking about some measures the UK could take. If things turn out to be as uh, many members, I think, on both sides, I suspect that they are, to return to that, uh, that formula, uh, I think we will have to have a serious conversation about our engagement with Russia. And uh, for my own part, I think it will be very difficult to see uh, how we can, uh, thinking ahead to the, to the World Cup this July, uh, this summer, I think it will be very difficult to uh, imagine that UK representation at that event could go ahead in, in the normal way, and we would certainly have to uh, consider that. Boris Johnson there, the Kremlin has denied involvement in the attack. Um, are we about, or are we, at war with Russia? I don't think so, are we? I've, I've sort of lost track a bit this morning. I don't think we are. We're not quite. But it looks like, um, you know, Boris would like us to be at war with Russia. I know Boris is a bit trigger-happy, there's no question. And... What was really striking was the difference between the tone struck by Amber Rudd, it was all about cool heads and not speculating, and the tone struck by Boris earlier in the week, where Boris actually, in his opening statement to the Commons, talked about this incident in Salisbury having, quotes, echoes of the Litvinenko poisoning he made the, more than the, 10 the, years the, ago. The, the jump straight Di- away. Direct link. Now, the question is, was that authorised by our security services, because it was in his opening statement. So I suspect it was. But 
Boris being Boris, he sort of riffed on it at great length in the questions afterwards. And I'm not sure that actually either the Prime Minister or Amber Rudd were really keen on that um, because they have both been pretty sort of circumspect in what they say, unlike Boris. It could be he's being used as a licensed hawk. You know, he's allowed to riff and the government are deliberately sending out different messages to say, look, you know, we're really, really pissed off about this, um, but we're not going to tell you what we're going to do yet. Um, that might be the case, but, you know, in international diplomacy, it's best to have one message, isn't it? It's just not the problem with Boris, that he does like to riff, he does like to go off script, he, he sees it as one of his strengths. But we talked about this before with him, as Foreign Secretary, surely, you, you know, diplomacy is all about language, very, very precise, making sure that you choose words very, very carefully. And if you've got a Foreign Secretary who doesn't do that, will that harm our relations with foreign countries, including Russia? Or is it with Russia? It's like, well, let's stop playing by the traditional games because you guys clearly aren't. Well, I mean, we've seen him before, haven't we, say, come out with rash things and sort of cause minor diplomatic incidents. He doesn't He, he doesn't believe in uh, reining in his thoughts. And if you think of... Uh, I tend to think of Boris and think of the phrase throwing caution to the wind. He just go, He just says things. And it it does worry me. It concerns me. And if I was Amber Rudd, I mean, as Paul says, he could be a licensed talk. He could be, you know, being given a bit more free reign to sort of talk about this more openly. But if I was Amber Rudd, I'd feel like that was undermining something which could potentially be very Yeah, very and serious. she did actually, she went out of her way today. Yeah. I, I wrote down what she said. She actually said, it doesn't help their work. This is the police and security services work. It doesn't help their work to speculate on this issue and on what we're going to do next. Um, so she said that several times. You know, she didn't like the speculation. Um, obviously, she's got something up her sleeve, and so has the Prime Minister, about what we're going to do once this has, if indeed it is proved that it's Russia that's behind this state-sponsored assassination. And it's a question of how many six stages you go through before you actually you let people know that. And I, I thought, actually, I mean, the, the Russian embassy, which is pretty you know, canny in London, um, has gone out of its way to exploit those differences, saying that Boris is, quote, unpredictable, increasingly unpredictable. It says that he's inconsistent in what he says. Now, obviously, that's propaganda. Of course it is. But you might actually just, here's a, here's a sort of devil's advocate case of why Boris is doing what he's doing. It actually might make sense. Two words, Donald Trump. Trump is unpredictable, is inconsistent, is kind of scary. But, you know, Maybe that's worked in North Korea because we're finally seeing that after all that bluster, all that stuff that he got hammered for, about saying we're going to blow you to bits, the, the the North Koreans are suddenly back possibly at the negotiating table. Because when you look at the speech that Theresa May gave, uh, I think it was in December, wasn't it, about Russia and the threat that Russia, uh, threat Russia is to the UK and to the West and all this kind of stuff, particularly with cyber crime. I mean, obviously it didn't make a blind bit of difference to the Russians, did it? So maybe it is time for a bit more sort of, you know, Bring, bringing a gun to a knife fight kind of mentality and say, well, you know, we are going to be a bit, take a play out the Trump play, but because, hey, he's doing things in North Korea which, which Obama couldn't do. But, I mean, the Litvinenko response didn't really achieve very much, did it? At the time, that was obviously huge. And what's changed? Like, London's still swimming in Russian money and, you know, ma- Russian businessmen have bought up, like, huge chunks of property that's sitting empty. And 
I don't know. I guess it remains to be seen whether this is going to be a kind of repeat, a lot of bluster and a lot of, you know, something needs yeah, to it's change. It's a, a really good point. I mean, you know, there's a lot of pressure on the government now to do a so-called Magnitsky Act, which is named after this uh, Russian exile. Um, it's basically trying to crack down in a really, really tough way on Russian money overseas. Uh, and some Russian exiles in London think that at least we in Britain are, are tougher than the US on some of this stuff. But a lot of MPs are, are saying we should go much further. And it was interesting that Boris said in answer to questions on this in the House earlier in the week that he was open to that idea of toughening that up. Amber Rudd again today on the radio said exactly the same thing. Um, but the, there is a, a, a wider problem, which Kate's rightly highlighted, which is you can talk and then you can threaten, but you've got to follow through on your threats with Russia. Uh, otherwise, they just completely because laugh at you. look what Obama did with the red lines in Syria, for yeah. example, when he didn't follow through and he did it, and the Russians yeah. just went, oh, well, you... you, you and, I mean, we, oh, Boris obviously is more hawkish in government, and so he's got an, his own agenda. But it, it, even Boris was caught out by Dominic Grieve earlier this week, when Dominic Grieve, the chairman of the in- Intelligence and Security Committee, quite rightly pointed out after months of that committee not being formed when it finally was formed one of the first things they said was we want to go ahead with an inquiry on covert russian activity and still now the government hasn't responded to that and boris was slightly embarrassed to be reminded of that the other day and i think that's really quite significant if you're talking about what are we actually doing in the real world you know why not let the isc look at this properly um you know maybe the government know much more than we do but it is worrying Let's move on now back to uh, more domestic affairs. And Theresa May gave another speech on housing this week as she continued her self-appointed mission to solve the crisis in the sector. She attacked developers who don't turn planning permissions into actual homes fast enough, saying they need to do their duty to Britain and build the homes our country needs. May warned that developers' previous planning rates could be taken into account when they apply for permission to build even more homes. But developers argue that this is unfair, as for business reasons, they have to forward plan and keep a stock of undeveloped land to make their companies financially viable. Now, I could play a clip here of Theresa May setting out the problems behind the housing crisis, but you've heard that so many times before and life's far too short. So here is May responding to a question from The Sun's Harry Cole, who asked that given that she had opposed developments in her own constituency, was she in fact a NIMBY? This is about building the right homes in the right places. That's what the planning process is actually about. The planning process is a process which ensures um, that developments, that proposals for developments are looked at, uh, looked at properly. And yes, I have opposed a number of developments in my own constituency. I've also, for what it's worth, Harry, supported a development that took place on uh, a Greenbelt site which had previously been built on. So think about that one. Nice little sign off there from Theresa May to The Sun. I find it difficult to get excited about this housing speech, Paul, and you know how excited I get about housing. I mean, uh, planning, I get I get it why planning is important, but uh, it does seem to be, th- th- there's been some reports about whether or not land banking does go on and it's all a bit inconclusive, and uh, the charity Shelter estimates that across England, planning commissions were granted for 1.7 housing units between 2006 and 2014, but only 800,000 have been completed, so there's about 900,000 there that haven't been done. So that would suggest there is a problem, but then businesses say we need to have some land that we're going to develop on in the future as no one's going to invest in us as a business. Is this really going to solve I mean, I'm getting bored now. Is this really going to solve the housing crisis? Boring, speech? I'm boring. Um, yeah. The thing is, don't forget, the reason this matters politically, it's a hot, hot topic, is because a lot of young voters and their parents and their grandparents all know how difficult it is to get either buy a house or rent a, de- a house at a decent price. And that's why this matters. That's really, um, all the flannel aside, this is why it was an issue in the last general election 
the Conservatives obviously realised they had a weakness on it, and they know. The Prime Minister said in her last conference speech, she she's not just going to treat this seriously, she's going to quote... Devote, dedicate my premiership. Well, she said it. this so many times. No, but that, she hasn't. That was the first time she'd done no, no, serious. No, no, but since then, yeah. since then, she's made a number of interventions on this, and we've yeah. heard this a lot from them. But I've still yet to see from them a policy which means that the next day a shovel is going to go into the ground on a house which wouldn't have been built if they hadn't announced that policy. It's all stuff around the edges, and if they really wanted to get a grip on it. We know that Sadia Javid wants the Treasury to borrow some more money to invest and properly build some stuff. We know that Gary Porter from the Local Government Association, a Tory peer, is very, very critical this week of the Tories not doing enough. Kate, why why won't they do this? Good question. Why won't they build on the green belt, is what I say. I just think... Radical. Well, I, I know. Mean, I, I bloody love trees. But... Honestly. Well, they say the reason why is but because... But not the, in your backyard. Well, it's the case well, that the green belt is yeah, to... I've got a backyard. The green, be- the green belt is to stop towns merging into each other actually that's it's not just about keeping fields and stuff so but i know this there's call for the green belt but are they scared of borrowing money borrowing large sums because they feel that that would undermine their whole austerity trust in the economy do they feel that they you know you can never outdo labor on borrowings that's why i don't want to go down this road possibly um i mean it's such a it's such a thorny issue but also it's very it's very much a kind of london and the south issue as well it's less difficult to buy house in the north that that is definitely true um i mean obviously wages are lower up there but anyway spoken to millennials down here because occasionally i speak to young Young people people. um and loads of them have said to me oh well actually i'm considering investing my savings in a plot of land and then when i've got a bit more money i'll try and get planning permission and either sell the land or like try and commission getting my own house built which really? seems absolutely yeah. mad to me maybe they should but plant trees on that plot of land yeah maybe yeah help the planet both. yeah um they could do but i suppose another question i was going to ask is does this policy would that apply to individuals as well could we see like time limits put on you know smaller builders smaller developers who've bought up a small plot are they going to be sort of coming under fire because is it not easier to go after the little guy rather than massive developers? I guess if they were to reapply for future planning mm. missions, then yeah, they'd, they'd look at it. Basically, I have no answers. Okay, good. It sounds like the government. Uh, no, the, the, but the thing is that you know there are things you say that government can do. It could be more radical on the green belt designation and, uh, or the fringes of it or, or, and around that, that sort of green type land, if not the green belt itself. Um, they could also, they could actually invest directly in building more houses. And, and that's what the Tory... Uh, Local government chief Gary Porter talked about, um, but they could also compulsory purchase things. And I know that some people in in Sajid Javid's department are really keen on compulsory purchasing land and saying, "Look, like, if you don't use it, we'll we'll take it and we'll build on it." Now, all those things are radical things. Which so far the government, Theresa May's own inherent nimbyism, which was highlighted in that that clip, actually is part of the problem. The, there's also don't forget she's got a tiny majority. Could she go ahead with serious radical proposals when you've got a tight majority? Don't Get everything keeps coming back to how few votes she's got in the house, and finally, it's the chancellor's problem as well because he's just basically decided he doesn't want to spend a lot of money uh, uh, on housing. He's given Sajid Javid a fair bit of cash, but not a massive amount of cash. And it, to be honest, they spent a lot of money on this Osborne's help to buy scheme when actually billions and billions of that underwriting that scheme, which some people say actually makes the problem worse, could have been better spent elsewhere. This week's quiz. Ah, last we've got a quiz. Got you didn't do one last week. We got slacker. we got complaints. So this week I came in extra. I came in early. Good to do a quiz. Well done. 
Just for you listeners. This, yeah, this quiz is called Should I Stay or Should I Go? Oh. Mm. And it is about, I'm going to basically give you... It's not the about the clash then. Affordability index of a country according to Numbio, the website that I found. <laughs> not Numbio. I don't know what it is, right? But basically, it's the affordability index of a country. And I think the lower is the better. Okay. I think coming that much early you to mean do it, this. If it's more expensive, the higher up it is yeah. to live in a place. Yeah, sure. I'll, I won't so, if, so London's affordability inter- index, sorry, United Kingdom's affordability index is... Um, Hold on, sorry. It is 1.58. Out of what? Whatever, I don't know. Oh, right. so this I'm is a name, shambles. No, no, listen, it's not. So I'm going to name a country, and you've got to tell me if it's got a lower or a higher is affordability it more index. Or, is it cheaper or dearer to live? Yeah, okay, right. Okay, good. Than, so than, than London. UK. So if, than the UK, than right? Than the UK. But I got, so if it's cheaper <laughs> in London, then it's London calling. Okay. Right. If it's more expensive in London, then it's London's burning. Okay. Right. They're both songs by The Clash. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so if it's cheaper than yeah. London. Yeah. It's London calling because London is calling you to live there. No. 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 You if idiot. <laughs> exactly oh, right. Right. God. If London is cheaper, then it's London calling. If London is more expensive, then it's London's burning. Okay. Right. Or the UK. I don't know why I said London. Because you, because you wanted to gag about the clash, right? Get on with it. This is hard work, isn't it? Okay, so United Kingdom's affordability index. It's one point five eight. Japan has that got a higher or a lower affordability index than the UK? It's got to be more expensive than than London, than Britain, definitely. London calling. So yeah, London calling. You'd want to live in London rather than Tokyo. Right, one point four one. So that's lower. So it's more expensive to live in Britain than it is to Japan. Yes. Wow. According to this, that's that's a good fact. I thought I'd tell you that. Um, Iceland. Oh, you've well been there lately and had yeah. lots of expensive pints. Very expensive. So well expensive. I would, I'd still say it, it's dearer to live in London. No. No. It's dearer to live in Iceland. Wow. Apparently. Um, Denmark. That's got to be cheaper than here. Yeah. Lond- you saying London calling or London's burning? Call? I can't remember. I'd, I'd say... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, which, whichever that one is. You think it's... You think it's Cheaper here. It's cheaper here than Denmark. You're right. Denmark's is 2.24. Oh. Uh, wow. That's really expensive. Yeah. Uh, Argentina. Oh, it's cheap. I've been. Um, and you I, are cheap, so yeah. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> I was be- better off when I came back than... What were you doing out there? It's just like three Drug weeks hot. Shh. Oh, right. uh, the, the other one. Yeah. Yeah. It's cheaper, yeah. 0.35. <laughs> wow. Uh, and finally, let's say, um, he says, looking at the list, let's say Italy. Italy? Italy. It's got to be... Loathers around to mention the Italians after the football this it's week. It's cheaper, cheaper to live there than it is here. Yeah. It's exactly the same. Oh. Mm. 1.58. That's a good one. There we are. You see? Good quiz? Yeah, it was. If slightly confusing. Yeah. yeah. But there we are. That was, should I stay or should I go? I think the answer is go, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, let's move on, shall we? Um, to SMP MP Mari Black uh, revealed the shocking extent of sexist abuse she receives on a regular basis this week. In a parliamentary debate on Wednesday, Black held nothing back as she told MPs some of the online abuse she is subjected to. Now, I just want to warn you, this clip features extremely strong language and it's not been censored in any way. Um, but here is what Black, what Black told MPs. I could soften some of this by talking about the C word, but the reality is there is no softening when you're targeted with these words and I'm left reading them on my screen every day, day in, day out. 
She needs a kick in the cunt, guttural cunt, ugly cunt, wee animal cunt. There is no softening just how sexualised and misogynistic the abuse is. I've got a comment from some guy, William Hanna, never heard of him in my life. I've pumped some ugly birds in my time, but I just wouldn't. I've been assured multiple times that I don't have to worry because I am so ugly that no one would want to rape me. Now, all of these insults have been tailored to me because I am a woman, as a woman. Now, we can kid ourselves that these are a few bad, anonymous people on Twitter, but it's not. This is everyday common language. Hearing that, why would you want to go into politics? Why would a young woman hmm. want to go into politics hearing that? Well, quite. I mean, you wouldn't. But, um, I mean, it's outrageous. It's totally outrageous. Completely unacceptable. And I don't know how many times people have to say this before things change. Um, but, having said that, I spoke to Harriet Harman a few weeks ago and she said that Labour has got young women chomping at the bit to go into Parliament and democracy at all levels. So, do you think we need? That's interesting. Mm. That's interesting. Do you think that that's because people now feel like they've got an avenue to highlight this abuse a bit more? Maybe I don't know. They feel like they they, they feel more confident to talk about it. Yeah. See, someone like Murray Black stands up and says, "Look, this is what I get." You know, and people feel like there's a strength in numbers thing. Yeah, and I think that they're inspired by all of the Me Too stuff and everything else that's gone on to say that this is not okay and we're going to speak out about it and there's no reason why we shouldn't put ourselves forward and, and do it, which is a good thing. Um, but, you know, I mean, this, this, happens, this happens every single day. If you look through an MP, particularly a female MP's Twitter mentions, it's deeply depressing. Yeah, which is why I think... Twitter has to do something about it. And I think it has to restructure the way it operates. The whole app mentions things. If you see this abuse just by clicking people who've replied to your tweet. or And there's got to be some change in the way Twitter works. A lot of this abuse, don't forget, um, is, is in many ways, I think, has been consistent. It's not as if men are any more misogynistic today than they ever have been in the past. And you could argue some of them are less misogynistic. But I, I suspect the, the, the abuse is the same, but the vehicle for amplifying it is so much easier. You just click on a button and you allow that person to see that green ink letter directly on their phone rather than just sending them a green ink letter, which might get through s several layers of sort of protection. And so the green ink brigade, and there's loads of them out there, uh, and um, I've just got a field day because of Twitter and the way it's structured. So I think Twitter needs to seriously look at how it makes men mentions and, and replies work to stamp out abuse. Because let's be honest, that's the only way any of these idiots get any amplification is by by people actually helping them do their job by passing it on and saying, look, here's another outrageous example. Um, so I think something has got to happen to Twitter. I do really you, do. Do you think that those calls that misogyny should be made a criminal offence? A hate crime, yeah. Melanie on held a debate in Westminster which Hall is, this week. Which was the debate that Murray was yeah, speaking Yeah, which was yeah. that debate. Um, and she wants... Um, the government currently has five strands of hate crime where you can... Basically means you can amplify sentencing for um, incidents where race is a factor or disability is a factor and somebody's been targeted because of those things, among others. Um, and Mel on wants... Um, uh, misogyny to be one of those strands so at the moment if you say you're um, prosecuted for shouting something offensive after somebody in the street that's a public order offence if you've shouted a sexist comment 
it's still a public order offence. That doesn't make any difference. It doesn't affect the sentences in any way. If misogyny was included in the hate crime strands, they could then amplify sentencing for those people who are found guilty of it. And ultimately, you know, it's a cultural issue that's got to be tackled at its roots. You know, it's all right having lots of um, sanctions and tougher laws and different ways of stopping the abuse spreading. You've got to stop the abuse in the, from being said in the first place. And how do you do that? By changing the way kids in school, I think, interact. And the way that's where it all starts, mm-hmm. at school level. And the really shocking thing is the stuff that Maria Miller's committee have come up with, which is the, the, the vile sexist abuse that schoolgirls get, on, as, as well as harassment, on a regular basis. Now, something's got to happen to make sure that those boys who are doing it are tackled in primary school and are told from a very early age, this isn't on. These these people have different genitalia to you, but they're exactly the same as you. They've got equal rights. And a lot of the research shows that actually um, prepubescent kids are indistinguishable in everything else that they can do, in strength, in uh, intellect, everything. And it just has to be rammed home, I think, that, that it, there is unacceptable behaviour and it won't be allowed the further you go down in your life. And there's got that's why I think... Yvette Cooper tried to push this whole idea of uh, sex and relationships education. But the problem is, whenever she flags up, you know, the Daily Mail and other papers write up as, oh, you're going to teach five-year-olds how to have sex, which but is th- not what it is But at I all. think there'll be a cultural change on that. I think it's it, it's like a lot of things. It's like homosexuality, it's like smoking, it's like drink driving. Cultural change yeah. is what drives real change. And I think that in, in a few years from time, people will be baffled as to why we didn't do it in yeah. primary school. Mm. Um very quickly, Paul, can you give us an update on what's happening in Labour? Because it seems that they want to break the link with the unions. Well... Is that a, is that a massive bit of fake news I've just said there? That's, that is, to okay, be fair. Okay, go on then. Uh, Christine Shawcroft, who we've got the honour on HuffPost, she, she talks <laughs> to HuffPost, um, is a member of the NEC, and she's a very senior member of the Labour's National Executive Committee, its ruling body, uh, because she chairs its disputes panel. Very, very powerful post. means that she's got a say over who is disciplined for various things like uh, sexism, racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism. So it's a very important post she's got within the Labour Party. Um, and she was so frustrated this week in one of their meetings at the way the rest of the the panel had decided that they they wanted to refer some cases up for disciplinary action. And she felt, along with a few other minority members of that panel she felt that was just against natural justice it wasn't fair the way people were being tried uh, and as a result she did this post on facebook which she said basically well she, she said it's all to do with the unions we should basically stop the unions end this link stop affiliating the unions and the labor party now she said to me it was sort of in the heat of the moment although i've been told actually you know she said very similar things uh, in momentum meetings in the past so she's got a problem and the problem is she thinks that unions stitch up a lot of labor party matters and that runs counter to this whole new mood of grassroots labor and momentum there has been this this um, this feeling among some people momentum I'm aware of who are very frustrated with the unions because they see them as as not being progressive enough as not being left wing enough actually because a lot of the unions aren't they're pretty centrist and they're sort of almost right wing in some of their views on certain things um, and so they they, they want to kind of break that link so it is, it is not just her in momentum 
there are activists who've written pieces about this. Yeah, I mean, that's why she's got a voice. But the, the reaction, boy, was it overwhelming that, you know, the unions really piled in. Yeah. You could say the unions made the, her case for her well. because they, the big unions really, really piled in on hard. But also, Momentum, don't forget, is very worried about any suggestion that you, you, you divide uh, trade union rank and file members from people like uh, uh, John Landsman and the Momentum organisation. Because, you know, ultimately, Labour's, Labour was founded on the backs of the trade unions. You know, it, it was crucial to the whole point of the low party existing in the first place. And even the most centrist Labour MP doesn't want to end that link. I remember Alan Johnson years ago used to talk about um, uh, left-wing union leaders being from the planet Zog. Um, but, you know, even Alan Johnson isn't saying that kind of stuff anymore. Uh, and just finally, we've not mentioned Brexit yet, have we? So Thank ha- God. What's happening in Brexit this week? Uh, well, you should know. <laughs> I should know. It's your favourite. You write a Brexit briefing. I do, yeah. mate. It's out later on today. Get it so out there, readers. Thursday, all sign good, up. All it's, all, it's all on there. Um, well, the EU passed their, published their draft negotiating guidelines to the trade talks, which went down like a bucket of cold sick with some people. Um, basically said that there should be no cherry picking, ignoring what Theresa May said, but then proceeded to cherry pick keeping fishing as part, you know, reciprocal rights on fishing, which is a big... A big touchstone for lots of Brexiteers. I think we should give a shout out here to Alison McGovern, who said on another <laughs> podcast, yeah, progressive podcast, it's a shit it's cherry. It's a shit cherry on a shit icing on a shit cake. Yeah. That, that was that was her description of Brexit because she said the cake, the shit cake. We can swear on this program. Well, I hope so, um, Paul, because uh, <laughs> you've, uh, <laughs> the shit cake was Tory rule from the 1980s, and she said basically Brexit has come out of all of that. Now, a lot of people might disagree with her or not um, as to causes of Brexit, but um, she's saying publicly what a lot of Labour MPs and Labour members think. I feel like this is ruining cherries for me, and I love cherries. I hate cherries. Do you? Well, I like fresh cherries, but I hate cherries in cake. Oh, I love cherries. Cherries in cake is the most disgusting. I mean, yeah. Controversial. Well, agrees with me. Yeah, just saying, yeah, we're pointing at someone on a podcast, Paul. We'll give the listener. He's pointing at the sound <laughs> guy I'm who, pointing was, to Bo, who was agree, our who was supreme sound engineer. So, okay, so basically, the conclusion of Brexit is that we are split on cherries. Basically. Gattos. Right. What? <coughs> Gattos with cherries. We don't like We don't like blackberries, do. gatto. I love it. Apart from oh, cakes. So send them God, in. God, it's awful. Yeah, I do. Right, let's move on from this. Uh, yeah, sign up for the Brexit briefing where I've actually got some good common sense stuff in there this week. Listen, so don't worry about that. Um, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Make sure you uh, tweet us, hashtag comments people. Make sure you leave lots of lovely comments on uh, iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. Make sure you sign up to Paul's morning Warzone memo. Might as well give you a plug for that, Paul. And oh, sign up for my Brexit briefing. And we will see you all next week. Say bye, Kate. Bye. bye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.